This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. After an emotional meeting with family members of Reed Oliver Fleming and his wife Lois, the elderly couple brutally murdered in 1973, Stoney seems to have found some solace in the fact that the family not only now doubts that Billy Burt committed the crime, but also that their entire view of Billy Burt and Stoney has changed. There's no longer any ill will to be found. And though Stoney's entire mission has been to prove to the world that his father, though he was a cold-blooded killer for hire who deserved to be in prison, was not the savage, torturing monster he was made out to be by Jim West. And it seems, at least as far as the members of the Fleming's extended family are concerned, he was not. But the people of power and the people of his victims, they noted him as the monster, the most feared, no conscious man alive, Billy Sunday Burt. Can't take that away. You can't underestimate that. That's been 50 years and so there's no secrets about him left. But in our investigation over the past few months, we have been trying to locate, with the help of cadaver dogs, the body of Billy Wayne Davis's mistress in order to hopefully connect Davis to that murder and try to prove that his testimony in the Fleming case could not be trusted as well. The reality is that Burt was sentenced to death for the Fleming murder solely on Davis's testimony and the eyewitness accounts placing him 10 miles outside of Wrens, Georgia on the night of the murder. It's not exactly a bulletproof case. Davis had denied knowing anything about the mistress. In fact, he denied even having a mistress at all. Yet Bert described in detail the events surrounding the murder. There is a bit of he said, she said here, but really, why would Bert admit to killing the woman in the first place if he was already facing the death penalty? As both Billy Burt and Bobby Jean Gaddis have since passed away, the only one who could shed any light on all of this is Billy Wayne Davis. But whatever happened to Billy Wayne Davis? It has been nothing but misery. No family. No blessings. Total isolation. Ridicule. Destruction. By other convicts. Had none of the blessings my father had. I know this sounds like rambling, but see, this is stuff that goes through my mind when I rationalize and try to make damn sure that I'm telling my grandkids and my son what I know. Let me put it to you this way Billy Wayne Davis has not had a son like me who worshiped Granny walked on, or grandson like Stone, or any other of my brothers and sisters' kids, he hadn't had the benefit of his grandbabies just wallowing love on him the entire time. I think the price he has paid is unimaginable. I think the price my father paid is as bad as most people can imagine, but I can't imagine the price that Bill O'Mane and Bobby Jean's paid because they've had none of that. All they've had is cold, hard, as if they're in a Russian, Siberian prison isolation. Scared of all other convicts, no family, no friends, no visits, no nothing. Not only that, he is still hoping for parole. 
still alive, and still in prison. It seems that after all this time, Davis is still a protected witness in prison. It can only be due to the fact that he made a deal with Jim West to rat out Billy Burt. And in the convict world, you don't want to be a rat in prison. We asked Joe Robinson and Walton County Sheriff Joe Chapman if they might be able to visit Davis in prison. And they agreed. The audio you're about to hear is that of Billy Wayne Davis himself. This is the first time since his conviction that anyone has ever heard Billy Wayne Davis speak from prison. Well, what brought all this up? It's been quiet for a year, and now all of a sudden everybody's saying I did this, I did that, and Bert wasn't guilty. Well, let me, let me tell you how I got, I got involved. Sheriff Chapman gets right to the point with his questions for Davis. Well, I got to talking to Stoney for more. Of course, you came up, you had these books, and Stoney wanted us to come down here and just ask you if his daddy was really involved in the Wren's murder. He seems to think that he wasn't. And he said, you were the only one that would know if he was or if he wasn't. And he asked us, would we ask you that? And I gave him my word. I said, I'll come ask you. And that's what I'm doing. Davis immediately resorts to deflecting and clams up. The Wren's case. Who was it? The Wren's case. Who was that? It's part of the whole reason you've spent the past 48 years in prison, remember? Oh, I know he's an older man than his wife. Yeah, yes it was. Uh, Flaming. Uh, I remember the case, but I don't know what I could add to it that you don't know already. Well, we've heard two different times. Joe Robinson walks Davis through the story Stoney shared with him verbatim from his father about how Davis committed the murder of the elderly Fleming couple in Wrens, Georgia in 1973. Davis sits quietly and listens. His demeanor changes slightly before he gives a simple, cold response. Well, I'll let you know before we leave from you. He just says, I'll have to let you know before we leave from here. The two men continue to press Davis, not only on the Fleming murder, but also of the woman Billy Burt claimed was his mistress. But he stays tight-lipped. I didn't have anything to do with it. Okay. And the man that set it up is dead, so. Davis is right in saying that the man who's accused him of being guilty for the murder is dead, referring to Billy Burt. So what now? The fact that Davis is eligible for parole is keeping him quiet. And in the end of the interview, he decided he would wait to see the outcome of the parole hearing before talking any more about the Fleming murders. It seems there may be only one way to get Davis to confess, if Stoney's claims are indeed true. Having Davis take a lie detector test. And the only way that's likely to happen is to find the woman's body 
on the banks of the Mulberry River. The Sony's had a rough life. And uh, I can't do anything like that. Nothing. The interrogation of Davis provided nothing useful. He basically denied being a part of or having any knowledge of murder. When Joe Robinson asked Davis what he was in prison for, he said bank robbery, which isn't true. He didn't get life in prison for that. He got life in prison for the murder of a man named Charles Max Sibley, and that was based on Burt's testimony. So why is he being misleading? What does he have to hide? Why does he say he was nothing compared to Billy Burt, criminally speaking, that is? He's 79 years old now, and maybe his health is failing, or his mind is slipping. But when I told former special agent Bob Ingram about the Davis interrogation, he had another interpretation. Davis was very, very clever. Uh, He's a... He's a master at manipulation. He's good and clever and smart. Of course, all of his efforts are are criminally oriented, but the two of them together were extremely dangerous because one was very clever, very smart, very manipulative, and the other was just flat-out dangerous. And when they ran together, they cut a wide path. So maybe Davis is just playing dumb. Either way, he wasn't talking. And just as I started wondering, whatever happened to the results of those soil samples that Cheryl McCollum sent to the state crime lab, I got a message from the lab in Canada where the second set of samples were sent. And each of the samples, unfortunately, tested negative for human DNA. So what does that mean? When the test results came back from the lab negative, uh, I have to say, first of all, I was a little surprised by it. I feel very, very strongly that where the dogs alerted, there was something there. And that's the challenge when you do soil samples. You have to get, you know, the right samples, maybe a little bit deeper, maybe a little bit more shallow. Absolutely do not give up. With Tracy's input, I feel a bit better. I also called Walton County Sheriff Joe Chapman about our findings. Well, I'm going to crush your first theory you gave out on the cadaver dogs. I have never in 20 years had a damn cadaver dog find anything from me. Never. There's absolutely a possibility that there are bodies out there, but you're looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack. Because, uh, yeah, look, at, look at the time that's went by and what you're relying on. And, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complete shot in the dark. Sheriff Chapman's response left me feeling a bit defeated. But as we talked more, he had another idea. Well, the GBI would have records of that. I'm certain, I'm certain the GBI was involved. In, and when you excavate something like that, there's measurements, there's photographs. There's, there's no one more knowledgeable about the Dixie Mafia than Bob Ingram that's living today. While we had asked Bob Ingram for help, he hadn't yet come back with any information on the location of where Otis Reedling was found. And we were told that the GBI would only be called in if a body was actually found. But Sheriff Chapman who had already helped us close the 47-year-old case of Jim Dawes and interrogated Billy Wayne Davis at our request, put the wheels in motion and finally might have given us the one resource we were unable to obtain on our own. 
you got to get the GBI involved and you got to want them to be involved or they got to want to be involved. Well, you want, you want me to call the damn GBI? Well, shit, I talked to, I talked to my GBI agents. I got one in mind, a young one that's full of piss and vinegar and gonna save the world. I can call him and see what he says. To date, all the members of the Dixie Mafia have since passed away, except for Davis, who will likely die in prison. I don't wish him no harm. I, I can honestly tell you with uh, everything that's in me, when my father forgave Davis in 93, I forgave him. And when my father told me how he ended up confessing, I furthermore forgave him. It's not about getting Davis. I really, if he turned Davis loose tomorrow, I'd be happy for him. As crazy as that sounds, because what he has been through is unimaginable to people who have not got just a dose of it. Of When I say a dose of it, I mean a dose of total isolation, a dose of no love from anyone, a dose of no hope. By all means, he's paid. Yes, and I wish him no more harm. As for Jim West, he retired after Burt's final trial and had his own share of troubles with the law. It seems he had befriended the sister of Jim Dawes, whose mental health had been deteriorating in her old age. Shortly before she died, she changed her will and left the family's more than 270-acre farm to West. To no avail, more than 15 members of the Dolls family repeatedly tried suing West over this, claiming he had duped the woman into changing her will in her incapacitated state. He moved to Florida and was never heard from again. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As for the woman known only as Davis's mistress, legally, we can do no more without a search warrant. And that, at this point, is entirely up to law officials in Hall County, or if the GBI decides to reopen this case. I think that this woman, whoever she is, deserves to be found and identified if there's any inkling of her location. She at least deserves the effort of us trying. Somewhere out there, her family is still wondering what happened to her because she just disappeared without a trace. They deserve closure. And closure, no matter how difficult it is to accept, is necessary. It's a definitive end to a person's story, as Stoney found out for himself with his father. Before they moved him to Rare State Prison, two years before he died, he got so bad in Smith State Prison that his friends were having to put him in a chair and pick him up and tote him. Now, he had good friends. And even in that condition, they done it out of respect. He was revered by a lot of cons in there because of the man he was. By 2015, 
Billy Burt had developed Parkinson's disease, which was worsening, and he was moved to Ware State Prison in Waycross, Georgia, which had the medical facility that could give him the proper care he now needed. And when he walked in, you would have thought they were bringing in Charles Masson. They, I mean, he had him blocked down. And when we first come to see him, we couldn't see him. Top security, just like he just got, and boy, he was mad as hell. And what kind of stuff, when you say they were, he was locked down, I mean, what? Oh, they had him chained up, just like what you see on Hannibal Lecter. I mean, just locked down, scared to death of him. And so they tried to turn us away, and I said, no, sir. I said, you, we've been coming to see him for now on to 40 years. You tell me why you turned this well here. Uh, uh. I said, let me see you, warden. I'm not leaving here. I said, when I walk out there, I'll call the damn news of the governor or whoever I need to. They finally let us in. Here he come. Walked him out and take baby steps like that in front of everybody. They set him down there, Sean. I've never seen him that mad. He'd been in prison 40 years, had never just epitome of respect. Everybody ever knowed him, guards, warden, loved him because he was so respectful. So he was mad. And uh, I said, Daddy, listen, just give it a week too. It's natural for these people to be scared of you. I mean, they got your record they're looking at. This is a small prison. Give it a week too. If they get to know you, and I believe that. By the third weekend, he come out with a big smile on his face. They had gotten to know him. The women loved him because he was so respectful. They caught them all off guard. The female nurses in the prison's infirmary came to truly enjoy Billy's company. One would even write a letter to the Burt family years later, stating how respectful and pleasant he was to be around. I was kind of proud of that. And so for the remainder of his time, which was about six or one months, those ladies treated him like their grandpa. Can you imagine how wonderful that made me a stone feel? But with every good grace that Billy Burt received, there was a price to pay. Maybe he was right, after all, in saying that you reap what you sow sevenfold. We sat in the visitor room. Now, you know, Stone never missed a time since he was two days old, jumping in that car and spending a six-hour visit with my dad every time. But he would tell Stone stuff that amazed me, and I didn't fully get it why he was telling Stone about murders or bank robbers or something until... I heard him through and I realized he was telling Stone what not to do and the consequences of what he's doing. And in doing so, he confessed some awful shit. This particular time, just, I seen him go into contemplation there and I knew he was thinking about something. And it was about a two minute pause and he was looking at his hand and he said, Stone, yeah, Papa. His hand was shaking like this right here, you know, just like your Parkinson's do you. And while he was looking at his hand shaking, he said, Stone, you see this hand, son? He said, yeah, Papa. He said, in 72, man testified, you run to Texas. The whole time he's looking at his hand, you, he always relived the story when he told it. He said, he sent me after him. He said, I walked in on him. He's sitting in the chair with the TV. I told him to get up, cut off the TV. The whole time his hand's just shaking. He's looking at his hand, he ain't looking at Stone. He said, when a man got out, son, he come in doing this way with his hand, and it worse his mind. When he said it's the way, he, he amplified his shaky and showed the man it was worse. He got quiet a minute because it was painful, like I see it in his eyes. He closed his eyes. Now, he never shed a tear. You know, Miller B. Twist, his mother, something like that, but not over himself, pity. He said, uh, Lord, I didn't want to kill that man. 
I thought every way in the world not to kill that man. He's but he done testified, and they done damn paid me, and I done walked in with a without a damn ski mask on. And he thought there, and stones just fell by the am too. And he said, "Now, son, he said, look at my hand. Who you think I'm thinking about every night when I go to bed? I can't clean myself good, and when I get up in the morning, half my food go in my mouth and half go all over me." And he just looked at Stone, and Stone had done teared up, and I had too, and I seen it, the tear. He had a tear. He said, son, I always remember, Mama right. You will reap what you sow on this earth. Don't forget that, son. Will you do that for me? And Stone said, yeah, Papa. During one particular visit, Billy's health took a noticeable turn for the worse. We immediately knew something was wrong because he could, he was locked up. He couldn't move. He barely moved his hand. I looked real weak. He said, I think I messed up on my medicine, that Parkinson stuff. And then they take away. Now, he told me when the doctor come by, he called me on Monday. Monday, he didn't call. I was worried. Now, on Tuesday night, he called. He said, hey, son, good news. Doctor come by and uh, said, uh, it was that medicine. So, damn, I'm glad of that. I said, good, Daddy, we'll see you Saturday. He said, oh yeah, oh yeah. Y'all get here early so we have a good time. He listened, I'm gonna tell you something. I think I've told you this lately. I won't tell you what a good son you've been. He said, son, I know this might sound blasphemous. He couldn't say blasphemous, blasphemous. But I ain't no way to put it. He said, you've been a good son to me is Jesus was to God. And I immediately started crying. I said, Daddy, now why you, I know that. I said, Daddy, you ain't getting nothing but getting back. You the best daddy boy ever had. He said, I don't, just listen to me. Just listen to me now. I want you to know what you meant to me all this time. And even when you didn't know it, I've been so proud of you. He said, you don't know, uh, you got a son. Now you'll watch everything he does. He won't know you watching him, but you know him. He said, I'm so proud of the man you are, and you have raised that boy up. He better both of us. Well, I was uncontrollably crying by the time he said, now calm down, ain't no cry about. Billy then spoke on the phone with Stoney's wife and son, telling them each how much they meant to him. So when he hung up, I'm not gonna lie to you, in my heart of hearts, I knew he was getting ready to do something, but I thought, he's up there right in front of the nurses. He said, come back Saturday early, but it didn't add up. So I thought, should I, should I call down there and tell them to watch him? I thought about it and I said to myself, no, he's not, he's in his right mind. So I went to bed and I prayed hard. I prayed that night. God, let, him, let it not be what I think. The next day, me and Stone Rockdale County doing a water treatment plant. I was performing the job and Stone was running a big rock crusher. At about 10.30, I got a phone call in my truck right there on that job. And the man said, uh, is this uh, Bill Stone Walbert? And I said, yes, sir. He said, this is the warden of Warren State Prison. And I immediately said, God, please don't tell me my father's dead. And he said, 
I'm afraid he is, son, and I just lost it. Best I could through the uncontrollable emotion, I said, can you tell me how he died? And he said, I'm afraid I can't do that. He, he's with the coroner. I give you her number. So I called. And uh, I asked her, ma'am, can you tell me how my father passed? She said, I'm afraid I'm in the middle of the autopsy and I can't do that. And she could feel the pain in me because I was uncontrollably crying. I said, listen, ma'am, I said, he had a book that he sent home about a week ago, unexpected, and a page was tore out of it. I said, it was a page of his great uncle, John, whose last words were let her rip. Stoney is referring to Billy's great uncle, John, who was publicly hanged for murder nearly 100 years ago. His final words were let her rip. I said, is it possible those were his last words? And she stayed quiet for a minute. She said, I never said this, but yes, sir, Mr. Burt, let her rip was probably his last words. I was thinking, I just, Sean, it took me out. Some way, some way, right there in front of them nurses, him not able to move with one hand barely on a hospital bed, he got hold of a sheet was able to pull himself up just enough, 10 inches, to get that sheet right around his neck without them noticing it. It fixes where he just leaned back and it slowly put him to sleep. And that's how he done it. On April 7th, 2017, just over three months before his 80th birthday, Billy Sunday Burt took his own life in prison. He went out as he lived on his own terms. He he didn't want to be a burden on those nurses he liked any more than he did Mayor Stone. So he done what he done with his eyes wide open. And I know he was praying he don't go to hell. And I hope in God he's seeing his heart and see that he wouldn't try to escape any punishment he was getting because he done paid the price. That's all I can tell you. That's all I can tell you. Stoney, it seems, could not process the fact that his father was gone. There would be no more phone calls, no more visits, no more stories or fatherly advice. He would not get to watch the grandchildren he so loved grow up. Stoney visited the mortuary where Billy was being prepared for his funeral and was dismayed at how the mortician had made his father look. So he took over. I was saying, Dad, you know what? I'm not going to let you go out like, like this. And I cleaned him up and I cut all that. I, mean, I groomed him and I put that back in his hair and put his patch back on him and put his father's ring on him and his favorite belt buckle when he was out and everything. A picture of all his friends. And when I was done, he looked real good. But I had to talk to him the whole time so that my mind could and I pretended he was listening. And little Stone stood right there with me and was my assistant. We spent two weeks, me and Stone, digging his grave by hand in the rain with a tent. I, I know we look crazy to people, but I think it was 
I think it was, uh, I don't know, therapy. We watched the movie where Jesse James' brother, Frank James, turned himself in on condition he could bury his brother. So me and Stone dug the grave. I don't know that I've ever witnessed such an unconditional love between a father and son. In a way, it was a very romantic end. And after knowing Stoney all this time, I couldn't imagine Billy Burt's story ending any other way than being buried by his son. Not long after Billy Burt's death, Stoney and his son Stone began to build the rock-solid distillery in a way to honor Billy Burt. But as Stoney explains, it was also a coping mechanism. I guess if I had to say how long it take us to heal long enough to meet the public again, it was two months at least. My wife, God bless her, she uh, she was so wonderful that only she knew I had affected me and my son. So we got to thinking, me and him, about what we could do to keep our family together. And I wanted something to get into that I could bring my whole family together and not have to be apart because, you know, I just have turned 60 and he's gone and all of a sudden I'm in touch with my mortality. And so I knew that if I didn't do something to bring it all together before I died, I'd leave it on Stone's shoulders. And I have so much more in me to work with the Stone in life's experiences. So I set my mind on the distillery. Why? Because we made the best whiskey that ever was, bar none. Stoney found a nearly dilapidated building in Winder, one his father actually robbed several times over the years when it housed a garment manufacturing company. He made the owner an offer. He would rent the building from him for a low fee and restore it at his own cost. If the distillery failed, then the owner would still have a viable building. We started cleaning this place out. It was, it was, God Almighty, it was full of nothing but clothes. It was like uh, something that would, was going to be bulldozed within a month. But I seen how structural it was. Everything's concrete walls. That don't deteriorate. I looked at the roof, it's in good shape. I knew I could, with my abilities, learn from my grandfather of all the houses we built, I knew what I could do with it. And I wanted my son to have that experience with me. And now he can do it too. That was the beginning. You come along when it still looked like hell. And it did look like hell. There were boxes of junk everywhere and cardboard covered the windows. There were bare wires hanging out of the ceiling. But now, the building has been fully transformed into a beautiful structure, complete with old barnwood slats on the walls and memorabilia of his father embellished throughout. It's really something to see. And Stoney and his son did it all on their own. It's been all by wit. We have no investors. Stoney explains how building the distillery was a cathartic experience for him and his son, helping them cope with their loss. That was completely connected. This solitary work of me and him working daily, and Sean, we have worked in here until uh, we have just fell out on the floor on the curtain and, you know, exhaustion, because you don't bet the farm and slow down. Just the same as us burying him by hand, me and him putting this together, on our own. It wasn't a tribute to him, but in a way it was. It was a tribute to him to 
hopefully if he can see that me and Stone have the same relationship with him that's going to carry on that closeness of father and son with mutual respect. It's been nearly 50 years since the Dixie Mafia ran wild in the rural towns of Georgia. All the murders, the bank robberies, the loyalty and betrayal. Some of the old-timers I spoke to during this podcast still wouldn't say a bad thing about Billy or about the Dixie Mafia for fear of repercussions or because they liked him. But many in the area heard these tales for the first time in years or maybe for the first time ever of Ruth and Harold Chancy, of Junebug Stinchcomb and Booger, of Jim West and Earl Lee, and of Billy Wayne Davis and Billy's Sunday Burt. We've heard from many of these families, and it's clear that much of the younger generation knew nothing of what really happened, and that their own kin might have been involved. Fast forward to today, and the town of Winder has changed. It's grown up. New houses have popped up on the edge of town, and more families have moved in now. The sheriff's department, once barely staffed to handle all the crime, now has its own modern headquarters. And while so much has changed, so much hasn't changed. The water tower still overlooks the town square, and you can hear the train barrel down the tracks right by Stoney's distillery. The wall that Billy famously climbed is there too. Just a few minutes outside of Winder, the Mulberry River hasn't stopped running, a sooty mixture of red clay and sand. But there still remain too many X's, too many unsolved mysteries pepper the banks of the Mulberry River, the spots where countless victims were killed by the Dixie Mafia, buried deep in the red clay, never to be found, but also never to be forgotten. On a cool October morning, Stoney and I visited his father's grave together. A picture of Billy and his beloved Mercury Cyclone adorns the large granite headstone, and a huge bouquet of colorful fake flowers rests on top. Stoney has landscaping lights that point at the grave so that it's illuminated at night. We have a drink of whiskey and toast his father's memory. And Stoney introduces him to me. Okay, well, we're going to be here a minute. I always do a toast to him before I do anything. I ain't going to stop now, so. There you go, sir. So you want to make a toast to him? Well, yeah. I say, here's to closure. Here's the closure. All right, Pop. I believe you might know what's going on here, but I done what you told me. I ain't dead. And it's over now. And that man here with me, his name is Sean. Keep you on him. We talked for hours at the foot of Billy's grave. Stoney told me stories and memories. And before we left, he spoke again to his father. I love you, Daddy. He knows it. That's all I ever want to say to him. I love you. Which I do have time to come here. I swear to you, I feel like he's around, just like my grandfather. I know it's called superstition. People think you're crazy, but that's just called a beautiful thought. Sometimes I come here when I'm uh, 
all wound up about something and I talked to him. Now he don't talk back, but what I do hear is the conversation we had all through those years, what he would say. And you know, that advice I walk away with, a lot of times that makes good decisions for me. And it helps me, it just helps me. It washes my soul. This story started out for me as simply the unbelievable retelling of a hitman's incredible life story and the horrendous crimes he committed. And it certainly was that. But as I found out, it was so much more than that to me. It was also a tale of pain, loss, and shame, of longing and regret, of salvation and forgiveness. I found that it was more about a man trying to come to grips with who his father really was, not just who he remembered him to be, and how his father's actions truly affected people. It's a cold, hard fact that the families of Bert's crimes still struggle at times to cope with their losses. Some have never gotten over it. That's been a hard pill for Stoney to swallow. For him, coming to grips with all of this hasn't been easy, because really, He lost someone, too. He's lived the majority of his life bearing the weight of his father's actions, being pigeonholed into just simply being a Bert, the real Stoney never truly being allowed to shine through. I can't imagine for a minute what his life has been like growing up the way he did. How do you ever escape that? He's spent the past 50 years being looked down on by many just for who his father was, guilty by association. And I can honestly say that after spending so much time with him over the past year and a half, I like Stoney. I consider him a friend. He's a good man. A bit eccentric, yeah, but he's a good man nonetheless. He's kind, funny, giving. He does whatever it takes to provide for his family and make them feel loved and cared for. And it takes a real set of balls to stick it out your whole life in the same small town that looks down on you, if only because of your name. There's not one action that he's ever done in my eyes or in my presence or to my knowledge that takes away from him as a father, as a human being, or as the most compassionate, most ethical man I know. Now that sounds retarded. It does. That that, that sounds retarded for me to say it, but I promise you this. I can tell you this without a shadow of a doubt. If you come to Winder in 1973 and met Billy Burt and somehow ended up with him and his party that night, wherever it was, and furthermore ended up hanging with him, you feel the same way. You have to ask, how can you say that? It's because you would never see the side of him that come to get you in the middle of the night to kill you or to learn your lesson. Even jobs he took from people that he had second thoughts on. And a couple of them he would back up and butt and say, I've changed my mind. I won't, I won't do this. Even those he had to rationalize in his mind that it was kind of like war. As we sit here right now, I'm 60 year old. If I could change anything about the way I feel about him, if I could look at anything different to change my view of him for the sake of my kids and my grandkids, 
I can look you square in the eye and tell you, I can't think of one thing, not one thing. That'll never be understood by anybody. That'll never be understood by history. It'll never be understood by any movie that's ever made, any documentary that's ever made. That can only be understood by me and him. The other people that could elaborate on it and tell you why I feel this way are all dead and gone. But I promise you this, I'm, I'm not mentally retarded. I do have scruples. I do have compassion. My eyes are wide open when it comes to my father. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not. I've caught hell all my life for that. Do you feel sorry for what he's done? I feel sorry for his whole life. One of my fantasies since I've been a kid is to somehow magically go back in time to 1960 and tell him, Dad, this is what's going to happen. And I've even dreamed that before I woke up and when I was younger and cried because it wasn't so. But how long can you be sorry about the same thing and how many times? You say, yes, I'm sorry. And tell you the truth, before I had my son and my grandkids, I'd give my life for it not to be so. Now, I wouldn't call me selfish. I just tell you the truth. But before I didn't have nobody depend on me, I would give my life for all that be erased off his book of life. But Stoney can't erase the horrible things from his father's book of life. He must continue to live with them. And that's his cross to bear, as it has been for nearly 50 years. For better or worse, he is his father's son. One the saving graces for my family is I haven't been vocal about it, nor do I ever intend to be. But this is an interview, and I'm talking from the heart, and you're asking me about my father. So this is my one shot to say how I truly feel, because it's not going to come out of me again. I think you've heard enough. I don't think I can say anything more to let you know just what kind of a person Bilderberg was in my eyes. I tell you this, for 43 years, he never wavered in his principles, in his compassion, in his love for his family, in his convictions, until his last breath on this earth, everything he ever done was as deliberate and it's thought out as it possibly could be by any human being. And the only things he ever regretted was the decisions he made while on black pills. The jobs he took from kingpins. He regretted taking out people who had not done him personally wrong. The people who, like the Matthews, who caused it to be him or them, in which case he killed them. Those are the kind of things he regretted. 
But I think Billy Burt regretted far more than that, Stoney. I think he regretted ever making the decision to kill anyone. I think he regretted not being able to watch his children and grandchildren grow up. I think he regretted not being able to gracefully grow old and experience the things in life that only a loving grandparent can really understand. Seeing that circle of life completed. I think he regretted missing the school plays, the Christmas mornings, the Sunday afternoons at the river, and being a strong shoulder to lean on when times were hard for his family. Yes, I think he regretted these things too, Stoney. Billy Sunday Burt was a whiskey man. He was a bank robber. He was a hitman. He was a murderer. He was the leader of George's Dixie Mafia. He was also Stoney's father. I sat in front of my computer for hours trying to find the perfect words to end this man's incredible story. I decided to clear my head and take a drive. As I came to a stop at a red light, a young woman standing on the side of the road walked towards my window. I reached for the change in my cup holder, but she handed me a small, square, pink piece of paper, smiled softly at me, and walked away. On the paper was simply written, For the Son of Man come to seek and save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 And maybe that's all that Billy Burt really was. Lost. Don't ever get in your head that anything about this life, his mind, was anything other than tragic. Don't ever get in your head that it's romantic to be any kind of lawbreaker. Oh, it's so easy for young, dumb fools like myself to do that. But crossroads you come to in life, you tend to not see them when they're there. So you take a right turn when you should. But certain times when you take a wrong turn, there's no place to turn around, and there you are. That's what I wish people would get from this, the tragedy of it. He could have been a NASCAR driver or a lawman, and he could have been great at it. But he took too many damn wrong turns until there was no place to turn around. And then he just hit third, hit it wide open, and this is where he is, y'all. So that, that's about it. But Stoney made the right turn in building his distillery. It's open now, and business is booming. Can you taste a hint of peach? Just a hint. I'm not sure. And just weeks ago, Stoney found out his father was to be recognized for his wild driving days. He's being inducted into the Whiskey Car Hall of Fame later this month and given the honor of not only being the fastest whiskey car driver of the NASCAR era, but also having the fastest whiskey car in history, the 1970 Mercury Cyclone. And this is where our story ends. So, if you ever find yourself in this little farm town known as Winder. Make sure to stop by the Rock Solid Distillery for some of the best damn whiskey and brandy you've ever had. Stoney is sure to be there with his big hands and an even bigger smile on his face, still telling stories of how his father, Billy Sunday Burt, was the most dangerous man in Georgia history and the best father a boy ever had. 
A listener note. We will continue to pursue all leads and share any news around the investigation into the open cases we've worked on for the year, along with any new cases that develop as more listeners continue to contact us. Thanks for listening. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at In the Red Clay Podcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.